Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. It's this realisation that we all own our own destiny. It doesn't have to be huge impact or world saving or climate change, right? It's just you own yourself. Take a step. Dominic Price has a career that has reached far and wide through Europe, US and Asia Pacific. Dom is a work futurist at Atlassian, the home of the most intelligent t-shirt wearers in the business. Dom has a deep passion for understanding the future of work and his job is to help Atlassian scale. The future of work is all about unleashing the power of teams and Dom helped pioneer what is now a legendary globally shared team playbook, enabling teams to remain nimble, autonomous and focused and anyone from any company can access this wisdom. Prior to this role, Dom was previously the GM program management for a global gaming company and a director of Deloitte. Whilst originally from Manchester, after 17 years, he is proud to call Australia home. But you can't mistake that accent. Aside from copious in-depth chats on random topics, I've attended a few of Dom's keynote sessions before, and I always come away with a number of key things to apply to my everyday life. He's practical, insightful, and has a wonderful take on the world. I hope you enjoy this fabulous conversation with Dom Price. Dom, it is awesome to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Awesome. Let's kick in. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I think society should be having more conversations about our legacy, the impact we want to have, not just you know on our finances, which is historically what we've talked about, like here's my job and here's what I earn, but, but actually impact on the planet, impact on each other, impact on society and the outcomes that we want to achieve because I fear that we've got carried away with busyness, we've got carried away with outputs, and I'm done with it. I think COVID's taught us that maybe we were on the wrong path. <laughs> if, if we're gonna change that path, now's the time for us to go, you know what, if I'm gonna rebuild my foundations of how I exist and why I exist and what I do, I should do this for the highest impact on myself, the people around me, society as a whole. Oh, such a good topic, Dom. I love it. Where do you start? I guess is probably the question because there's a lot of uh, elements that you could probably clean up a bit in your life. So like, I'm talking about myself personally, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. Spot, spot on. Um, I think step one for me was, first of all, finding my purpose, right? Which is a really cheesy phrase that kind of makes me cringe, but it's like, why do I bother with doing what I'm doing? Like, if I look at my work purpose as an example, like my work purpose... For the last few years has been traveling around the world, getting on stage and doing all this wonderful stuff. And I get a huge amount of energy and adrenaline from that. And then COVID happens and it's like, well, there's no flights, there's no events. And you're like, cool, well, that's switched off now. 
So what is my purpose? One of the things I realized through my reflection there, and I didn't particularly like this realization, it's quite uncomfortable and, and, and confronting. I'm like, damn, how much have I been defining myself by my role? Like, that didn't happen on purpose. Interesting. Like, yeah. I, I don't remember sitting there one day and going, I'm going to define myself by my role. And then you're like, I mean, it defines so much of what I do and my rhythm and cadence and where I am in the world. And I'm like, that kind of happened by accident, right? Not a great, well, I'm like, not a terrible accident, but I'm like, do I want to be defined by that? And then I'm like, no, that, that's part of my identity, but not my whole identity. So how, how do I then understand, like, what is my identity and what do I stand for? rather than it just happening because we're in this day-to-day -day busyness and i was like the last three years have been crazy i've been rushed off my feet with a whole lot of first world stuff but i'm like should i have done all of it and now i have like i can't go back in time but actually with a clean slate of all events being cancelled and no travel and, and work from home and i'm like well i kind of have to reinvent it because i can't copy cut and paste anymore now it's funny because it, like all of us, I think it took that forcing function of going stop and not a, not a slowdown, a complete and utter grinding halt to go. <laughs> Your life is changing tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, kind of got no Instantly. choice on this one. Let's try and make the most of it. And it's, fun, it's funny because when I reflect, like it, it's amazing how I've had the answer in front of me for so long and ignored it. So I'm fortunate enough to have a, a, a good friend by the name of Barry O'Reilly, um, Irish chap, mad as a box of frogs, right? And, and Barry's a, a Singularity University professor. He's highly educated, a brilliant sort of business consultant professional, absolute bugger on the Negronis, but he's a really nice guy. And he wrote a book called Unlearning. He also contributed to a book called uh, Lean Business Canvas and a whole lot of other stuff. But he wrote this book called Unlearning. I've hung out with him in four different countries around the world, um, all of them involving Negroni. It seems to be the common denominator with me and him. But he, he talks about like our skill set as humans and our superpower being how we take the lessons from the past, keep the goodness from them, but unlearn the old habits, the old rituals that won't work for us in the future, right? It, there's a methodology in there, there's frameworks, there's guidance, and when you see it, you're like, oh, that makes complete sense because I need to be able to evolve and I should evolve because the world I'm in is evolving. So I need to evolve at the same Absolutely. pace. And so I've gone through his theory by hanging out with him, by reading his book, I've even had the pain and pleasure of attending one of his training courses. But then you're like, oh, unlearning's not a theory. It's an action. It's a doing word. I've got to do something, right? And so we, we just get so carried away, right, with stuff. And then you're like, ah, oh, I've fallen into that trap, right? I'm busy, but I, I, I've stopped asking myself the question, am I effective? So I had all the, um, all the assets in my artillery already. I just wasn't giving myself the space, the time, the freedom to go, pause, reflect. What are the things that have worked that you want to keep? What are the things that haven't that you want to pause or stop or change? What are the things you want to add in? And how do you find the time for them? Right? What are you experimenting with? Not experimenting on others, but experimenting on self. And so I had all that stuff in the artillery. I just wasn't taking the time out to use it. So once I realized where I was at, it's quite easy to do that, to go, okay, like, this is on me. This isn't on anyone else. I can't blame or hold anyone else accountable for this. It's on me. So what are the things that I want to do and how do I define that and what actions do I want to take? So once I had the sort of spark, the actions were quite easy. But for anyone who wants to know the background, his book on unlearning is a very frustrating read because you will find yourself nodding a lot 
and realizing you don't do it. Yeah, I love that. Fantastic. Don't you hate those books? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's Why the, don't I just it, buy uh, this book? I know this shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think there should be a, like a section in Dimmix called Stating the Bleeding Obvious. I don't do it, but it's bloody obvious. And I'm like, I think that's why you're making money selling books on it. Because if it was that easy, we'd all just be doing it. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. So the steps you just walked through, fantastic and really practical as well. So yeah, everyone needs to read the book, but also take note of your steps there. And I'll capture those in the show notes. But you make it sound like it's kind of easy. And for a lot of people listening, they might have their own businesses or companies and have a bit of flexibility um, around doing that. But what if you work for someone? You work for someone, but your work is actually, it, it appears, a lot more flexible than some workplaces. How do you um, you know, change your priorities or you know, kind of move stuff around a bit like you were saying then? Because you might go, well, I don't want to do that shit anymore. But then your boss is like, well, you've got to do that. <laughs> like, how do you? What's your uh, words of advice for people that try and navigate and change their environment to say well this is actually not effective this you know I'm not having impact here but I I don't really have the um, freedom flexibility or the authority to change it like I would want to probably three things spring to mind one one there's there's nothing in work that you've got to do like everything's a choice (laughs) I like I know we sometimes like to act like it's not a choice oh I had no choice you're like well you did you, you, you purposely chose not to do the other thing. And there could be a million and one reasons why you didn't do the other thing. And it's probably the right decision, but don't pretend the decision got made for you. Yeah, I, I work with a lot of leaders who they've just turned themselves into victims and they're like, oh, I'm in this environment. And I'm like, yeah, you chose that environment. Like, like you chose the paycheck. You've chosen that organization. You've made that choice, right? I mean, pre-COVID, we're in the best uh, employment market in the world. Like the unemployment was at a record low. So it's like, if you don't like what you're doing, move. A lot different now, right? A lot of people have gone from, I want to thrive and have impact and gone, I just want to survive, right? And, and I get that. So yeah. step one is, is you don't got to do anything, right? You, you make the choice. Step two is the realization, and this is a really funny step for people, is that you're a role model. So to everyone listening to this podcast right now, you may not identify as a role model. It's probable that no one's told you they're role modeling you. But the science says that something like 20 to 30 people a day role model your behaviors. Because they'll look at you, Michelle, and go, well, Michelle's successful. And Michelle likes a gin at night. So I'm going to have a gin at night because that will make me successful, right? They will role model your propensity for a gin. Have you got a camera in my house or something <laughs> or what? Just guessing. But, but what happens is people role model you. And so, and this is what I've seen. Like if you go to the corporate world, I've seen this on mass for the last probably two, maybe even three years, right? Senior leaders at organizations who stand there and do these big announcements about transformation projects they're running. And I love asking them the question. It, it, it just, because it always, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I'm like, oh, what are you changing about yourself? And they're like, oh, nothing. I don't need to change. It's the company that needs to transform. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to role model change to get others to change, right? And so that's step two. Step three is the hardest step because this is the bit where you might be wrong. Right? This is the bit that people are often the most nervous about, which is ask the question. Right, so, so what I find is a lot of leaders are like, oh, I'd love to drive change and do things differently, but I just, I'm never going to get approval. It's never going to happen. And you're like, cool, you've just agreed to never try. So the good thing about never trying is you'll definitely fail. Right? You're definitely going to be crap at that because you never tried it. However, there's this other option. There's this other door 
where you break it down into manageable chunks and you try it, and in trying it, some things will work, some things won't. So if you're willing to be vulnerable and step into it, you'd be amazed what you can achieve. If you're going to stand this side of the door and say, it's never going to work, so there's no point in trying, I promise you it definitely won't work. And so it's this realization that we all own our own destiny. It doesn't have to be huge impact or world saving or climate change, right? It's just you own yourself, right? No one else does. And so whatever you own about yourself, your brand, your persona, your style, the way you communicate, the way you listen, the impact you want to have, right? The other top end of this conversation, you own all of that. And so take a step, right? I mean, we, we recognize people at Atlassian for being part of a duocracy. I mean, we don't like something, show us an alternative, like try it. And if it works, celebrate it. And if it doesn't work, tell as many people as possible. Like we learn lots from those. We don't call them failures, they're experiments. Anyone sat there saying they can't, uh, they can, they've chosen not to. Yeah, I love it. It's such, such sage advice. And I think a little bit probably confronting for some people as well, but it's just like, boom, you know, if you sit there and go, I can't do that, I can't do that. Just have Dom's voice in your head saying, actually, you're choosing to do that, which I couldn't agree more. So Dom, your your actual title at Atlassian is a work futurist, which is such an amazing title. I mean, one, what does it mean? And two, how do you have the most impact that you possibly can in a role like that? I've been at Work Futurist for about three and a half, four years. Came about because our mission is to unleash the potential in every team. We've historically done that through technology and helping people be better collaborators, better project managers, better delivery of stuff. And that has worked and continues to work really well for us. But what we realized was there was a large human aspect in the value of what we delivered. When we stated our mission of unleash the potential in every team, technology got us some way there. But we're like, the way a team operates, how a team's effective, the environment they're in, uh, the skills and mindset they have. We're like, okay, this is bigger than technology and software and features. And so we decided that it was probably prudent for us that we understood the future because we have to build things today that you don't know you need yet, right? One of the biggest dangers for us is saying, customer X has said they want this. By the time we've built it, they don't want it anymore. So we have to be able to imagine a world ahead of you. Interesting. But also we have yeah. to, to be authentic, we have to live that. And so what we decided was, as we go to understand the future of work, we should not only feed that into our products, we should feed that into Atlassian. How do we evolve? How do we be that example that our customers want to see? And so we've been practicing that for a few years now. So I spend about half my role uh, externally, uh, conferences, uh, events, uh, podcasts like this, but also with our customers. What are the challenges you're going through? What are you trying to achieve? Why are you doing that? What's gone wrong for you? What's gone right? And doing all that sort of uh, consumption via osmosis. And then I bring that back into Atlassian and I'm like, here's what I've learned. And it's learned from random people. It's here's what I learned from uh, the military. Here's what I learned from a doctor who ran the trauma center at Washington DC hospital. Here's what I learned from uh, Dr. Andy Walsh who ran the uh, Stratos program, Felix Baumgartner, free fall from space. Here's what I learned from um, RC Buffett, who is the general manager and CEO of San Antonio Spurs of how to run a, spur a, a sports team, right? And here's these business leaders and Richard Branson. And I rattle all these things off and people are like, what? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Here's a whole load of ambiguity. We need to try and make sense of it. Try something. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't, stop. And so it's not taking all that to build a grand plan. It's taking all those data points and going, what do we do next? What do we do next? What do we do next? Right? Just to keep our own rhythm going. 
Sensational and such great, um, interesting stuff. But I love that approach and a lot of people could actually apply that in their jobs and, and actually in their businesses, right? Just to your point of actually talking to customers and your prospects more, actually learning what they need and want about one, your existing products and how they could be better. Because often your customers do know, you know, how your products can be better. They just don't always tell you or you don't always ask, right? But then also random people that are, you know, experts in their field, giving you some interesting stuff that then will you know set a catalyst off for you then into I guess your engineers or whatever that then will set something else off it's so cool so um how did you get into a job like that though because you came from quite an obscure background and you don't have a necessarily a tech background though do you no I mean I'm a chartered accountant by trade um not a good one to be brutally honest like I think I still pay a membership somewhere to officially be a chartered accountant just because I, I figure like it makes me pretty cool in life. So I'm like, why not? If I ever did a business card, I could add the letters onto my name. My first role at Atlassian was program management, which in a world like Atlassian was still relatively vague and ambiguous. It's a lot of delivery, helping teams come together, right? I was the, the, the glue that connected a lot of our team members and teams to, to work effectively. And in doing that, there was two parts, one which is quite scientific, which is how do we get better and better at delivering? And one which was quite artistic. How do we intrinsically motivate people? What does effective teamwork look like? What's the self-serve model versus a coaching model? How do we imagine the future, the, like the, the, all the softer stuff? I was pretty average at the science part, but I got away with it. And I really enjoyed the artistic part. And then after three years, we're like, let's split the role. Because <laughs> that bit that you're not good at you're definitely not going to get any better at it. And I'm like, oh, praise to you. That is so true. I know my limitations. I'm quite proud of them. And so when we took on this, this artistic part, originally, um, I used to have a talk called The Secret Source of Atlassian because I was working internally at Atlassian. And then Mike Cannon-Brooks, one of our co-CEOs, turns to me one day, he's like, why don't you just call it The Source? Why, why, why don't we share it with customers? And I was like... That's a really good point. And, and all my predispositions from an, uh, another life were there. I'm like, well, it's ours. It's our IP. We should hoard it. We should keep it. And, and Mike's was like, no, if it's valuable, we should share it. I'm like, God, you're mad. I think it's why he gets paid the big bucks. But I'm like, it actually made sense eventually of saying, hang on. In the world we're in today, knowledge isn't power. right? It's the application of knowledge that's power. So if knowledge isn't power, I should give knowledge away for free. It should be democratized. So, so when we took our ways of working, you know, for about two or three years internally, we'd acquired and uh, aggregated all that into the Atlassian team playbook. It was our team playbook on our intranet. It was our version and we kept it for ourselves. And then literally within a few weeks of working with some colleagues, we're like, you know what? We're going to flip the switch. We're going to ship it externally to customers free of charge, including templates. You don't even have to be a customer. Anyone can access it. We're product agnostic. So we're not even encouraging you to use Atlassian products. We're literally giving it away for free. And then the decision was made that we were so proud of that, we would actually delete our internal version. Because if we're happy enough to share it, it should be the same version that Atlassian staff use around the world. So, but the version that's out there today bears little resemblance to the one that you know, I was part of shipping a few years ago because it's evolved a lot, right? As we've learned more about teams, we've added stuff, we've removed stuff, we've added more experiments. And so we continue to evolve and we continue to evolve that asset. And we still continue to get questions from customers probably about once every two weeks. Um, I'm nervous about using this in case you put a paywall in place. I'm nervous about becoming dependent on this in case you start charging me for it. I'm like, how free do you want me to make it? It's, it's just free. 
That's the cynical nature though, isn't it, of us these days? Because it's very rare that that happens. So, I mean, that's, that is incredibly generous, but also so, I guess, you know, for what you've told me about the founders of Atlassian, it's just so typical, you know, the way that they think so differently about stuff and that sharing that knowledge and so gracious and, and um, philanthropic in those ways. So how many people or how many times has that been downloaded? Do you know? Well, that's the beauty is you can't download it because it's not a book. The number of times people said to me, I-, I want to download it and read it. I'm like, no, nah, it's a terrible read, right? It's a very situational um, asset. And so what happens is we've actually looked at user behavior. Often, uh, uh, usually they're coming because they're suffering a major pain point or they're just curious, right? They're just kicking the tire. They'll look around and they're like, I'll bookmark that. I'll come back one day. And we never know when they're going to come back. But when they do, they're like, here's the thing I'm struggling with. My team's struggling to change their behavior. So I'm going to try this retrospective that Atlassian advise. Or, you know, I'm struggling as a leader. Here's something I'm going to try. Or it's a project kickoff. Uh, We've got this thing called a project poster. Like, do you know why you're doing what you're doing? Right? So the diagnosis is, if you're you're busy, but you don't know why you're doing the thing, try a project poster. And it's it's not a project plan. It's a poster. It's a living, breathing poster of your team and what you're working on, why. And we evolve it every few weeks. And so people tend to dive in and do that. And then one of the most popular assets in there that I absolutely adore uh, is called a health monitor. And that's because every time I do one, I'm pleasantly surprised. Literally, you sit around as a team. We have these eight opinionated statements on what makes a healthy team. And at the end of each statement, we go three, two, one. And you either go thumb up, thumb sideways, or thumb down. Either we're awesome at this average or it's a weakness of ours but we get everyone to vote first and speak second and so all your team members regardless of seniority title role all get a vote and then you're like cool michelle you you voted down what did you see that made you vote thumb down and dom you voted thumb up what did you see because neither of you are right neither is wrong we all see the world through a different lens And so it's a great way of saying, forget technology for a moment. As a team, human to human, how are we working together and how can we get better? And so that as a force multiplier of performance is huge for me. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, It's such great, really simple stuff that you can do, as you say. And then they're kind of like pulse checks with your team, you know, not only is sort of how they're going. That's why I love like kind of stand up meetings. You go around the table like bang, bang, what's going on? You know, it's much faster and more simple, but it's back to your point about impact. It's like we're not having a meeting for meeting's sake. We're here to talk about, you know, purpose or, you know, if people need to check in or they're stuck on stuff. So the only thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that then is obviously the current situation where most of us aren't working next to our colleagues in our offices like we maybe used to do so how do you embrace that in the current environment and I know again you were always flexible because you're always bloody on a plane so you're used to you're used to uh, doing that but what sort of things are you and Atlassian kind of bringing into place about ensuring that your teams and you have those connections with your teams even though you are uh, potentially working remotely I think we're extremely fortunate so about two or three years ago, we acquired Trello. When we acquired Trello, there were about 70% remote workers. We thought we were decent at remote work when we acquired them. We were specifically quite arrogant and ignorant. We were like, yeah, we're pretty good. And then we acquired Trello. We're like, hey, we're really mediocre, like at best. And, and we learned so much what, from because them. Because they were so good at it, you mean? Yeah. Is that what they taught you? They'd been built remote first. We'd added a few home workers over time, but they'd been remote first from the get-go. It's just a very different mindset. Michael Pryor, who's their CEO, who's still with us, an amazing chap, he taught us a huge amount about how they'd done that, what worked, what hadn't. Again, just sharing those lessons along the way. A couple of things that we added, like practical things. So um, from that day onwards, 
we had a realization, first of all, that we were already distributed. Your Atlassian spread across 12, even before COVID, we had 12 locations around the world. And so you have to work in a distributed fashion anyway. That means this, this craving people have for the water cooler conversation. We lost that craving a while ago because to be fair and equitable in Atlassian, you have to write stuff down to share it because there's, there's people in 11 different countries that aren't at your water cooler, Michelle. And so if you want true collaboration and true innovation, that's not two like-minded people gathering. You need that diversity, right? So we've, we've always had a practice of blogging. Such a good point. One of the Trello guidelines was if one person dials into a meeting, everyone dials in. And I was like, yeah, no, that's fine. I'm like, no, no. So I'm in New York at one point. I'm like, hey, which, which room are we going to? They're like, no, no, get your own room. I'm like, no, I'm joining that call that you're on. We can be together. And they're like, no, no. If one person dials in, we all dial in. Instead of having to have empathy for the poor sod that's on a screen at the end of a room, while seven of you in a boardroom all chat to each other, you don't need empathy, you have a level playing field. And so we've run all of our meetings under that fashion for about two years. So when COVID happened, and I've got all these leaders around the world people going, how does it last you run their meetings? Because it's a nightmare. I'm like, our meetings haven't changed, literally have not changed. Because we were already dialing in. Even if we're in the office, we dialed in. Because it was the only way to be fair to the people that weren't in the office, right? You want it to be equitable. Yeah, what a great point. Like just something again, so simple that changes stuff. So let's come full circle then to the question, which is around impact. If there is one thing that you'd like to leave people with today around, you know, you've given some great tips on points that we can change and doing some deep work, really. Some of that might require, you know, to sit down and actually, uh, as you say, do the work, not, like, not just fluff about. What else would you like to say in terms of actually getting people to um, have more of an impact on their lives and on others i'd recommend one thing i was very fortunate a few years ago to be uh, in new york visiting a, a good friend of mine we had a few uh, pinot noirs uh, she's like a good mentor of mine and she gave me some advice uh, to help me and it's a practice i've been doing for a number of years now i think i may have shared it with you last time we caught up but i think for your listeners it's just a practical way of going well what, what can i do like i've heard all this thought leadership wonderful what do i do next um, every quarter, every 90 days as a leader, I reflect on myself and I do an exercise called the four L's. So this is purely about me, not about my team or partner or the, the society. It's purely about me. It's a selfish exercise on purpose. The four L's. What did I love about myself? Do more of it. If you love something and you're good at it, stop apologizing, stop being humble, do more of it. It's good for you right? Scientifically doing things that you enjoy that you're passionate about is good for all of your chemicals in your body, right? Let people know and, and it's more valuable to them if they know, like own that stuff. The second and third L is what did I long for? What did I loathe? Right? So the long for is the thing that you've probably been wanting to add in for ages. I want to get better at uh, golf. Uh, I want to play a musical instrument. I want to do this. I want to read more. I want to exercise more. I want to eat better. And then you don't do it because you haven't got any time. None of us have extra cognitive load. We're full. So you're not allowed to add in the longed for until you remove the loathed. And the loathed is the old habit that you've got. You've been doing it for years. It's comfy. It's not great. It doesn't add a great dividend or value, but it's just a bit sticky. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to stop doing that. And the space, the time, the freedom that gives me back, I'm going to add in the longed for. And you have to accept that when you first add in the longed for, you're probably going to be shit at it because you've not done it before. It's a new muscle. You're not going to be natural at it. I don't care how old or how smart you think you are. The first time you do something new, you're a bit crap at it. Accept that. It's good for you. And then the fourth L is what did I learn? 
what was the experiment I ran on myself last quarter and what did I learn? And I take those four L's and when I do it, I have a peer-to-peer network that I share it with. I'm like, I've just done my four L's exercise. Here's what I love about myself and, and, and here's what I've loathed. That I need, and, and I'm going to stop doing that loathed. And Michelle, if you're in a meeting with me and you see me doing that by accident, call me out. Right? And here's the longed for. Um, I'm trying to add this new skill. I want to be a better facilitator. Michelle, can you point me at anyone? Can you introduce me to anyone who's a great facilitator? I'd love to learn from someone else. And then here's my learn from the last Beautiful. quarter. Right? And, and it's that's a celebration. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And suddenly, you all start sharing with each other and you're like, ah, oh, I don't need to buy books or consume thought leadership anymore. I just need to be open and honest and vulnerable with my peers and then be open and honest and vulnerable back. And suddenly... I'm learning stuff, right? I'm actually evolving myself. And so I always get frustrated when people start with others because I think they think it's selfless and it's not, right? I think it's arrogant versus start with yourself and role model the behavior you want to see in others. That's that's the way forward. So try the four L's exercise. We've actually, we actually documented it and made it part of our playbook. There's free Trello templates if you ever want to share it. It's all in there. But as an exercise, both for me personally and then sharing it with people I trust, I find it very cathartic. Um, and it, it holds a high bar to me to evolve constantly. And you do that every six months, you said? Every quarter, every 90 days. Yeah, right. We have spoken about this before and I've heard you talk on it. I never realised that you share it with your peers, though, because that just then creates that extra element, doesn't it? I just thought you did it as a self-assessment. But having almost like that accountability factor and, you know, as you say, like them holding you accountable, but also the fact that you've got to say it out loud. I think sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, just yeah. makes that, that little bit more real, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't make it any easier, if anything. But I, I, And I don't always share it. It's, it's, Sometimes it's a personal thing and I'm like, you know what, I, I can just do that myself. Other times I'm like, I know the power of my rationalization or I know how sticky that habit is. I'm going to need someone to call me out on it. Otherwise, I'll just fall back into that loop. Whatever the reason, sharing it with someone helps. But also, again, it's role modeling. Like I, I can't say to any other leader, you should evolve yourself if I'm not willing to share with them how I'm evolving myself, right? It's just inauthentic and not fair. So I, I think just holding yourself to the same standards you hold other people to is a, is a healthy attribute. Certainly in the modern environment, is a healthy attribute. So true. So Dom, I, my last question to you is, have you always been so open like this in terms of that vulnerability piece? Or would you say that that's got easier as you've evolved and actually matured? Or... Um, like, where did you learn that from? Because that's that's not easy doing that work. And as you say, you know, recognizing that you need to be held accountable by things because you're not great at it and actually helping someone or asking someone to assist you on it. Like that, there's a very, fair bit of vulnerability involved in that. Yeah, I think there's, there's a two-part answer there. Part one is um, I think the basis of why I'm like that is family values. Like I, I grew up in a very modest sort of lower middle class household in the north of England, two older sisters. I was the baby of the family till I was 19. Then my annoying little sister came along and ruined it for everyone. But I've always just been surrounded by a very open house, right? Um, uh, it's always a very noisy house. I'm the small, quiet one in my family. There's just this competition for airspace. What, but, six foot five? <laughs> yeah, yeah, six foot five and, and never short of a word. But it, it, it's just fascinating how those values <laughs> And, and you know, even even rituals like sitting around the dinner table from a very very young age, we all sat around the dinner table. TV wasn't on. That was our time when we conversed and, and hung out as a family, right? And so that's that's one aspect. And then the second aspect is I think I've been very fortunate in that I've either had great feedback and great mentors, but also when the times when I've chosen to be vulnerable, I've not suffered any recourse. 
It's, it's not halted me, it's amplified me. Yeah. And I think it's that reassurance yeah. that really amplifies you when you're like, ah, oh, I felt really nervous being open and vulnerable. And then you are, and you're like, oh, that made things better. That's weird. And sometimes it's just better because you shared it and you're like, oh, I mean, just saying it out Feel loud, good. you're like, what? Brilliant. Yeah. Other times you share something out loud because you think in, in your head, you're the only one experiencing that. When you are vulnerable, I think what you realize over time and with practice is you're actually inviting other people in, right? It, it's nothing to do with you. Vulnerability is nothing to do with you. It's you creating a safe space where you invite other people in to be themselves. And when you do that and there's no recourse and you get more context, you get to walk in the other person's shoes and you build more empathy for them. That, that's got to be a powerful thing. So for me, I think I'm just you know, a combination of family values, but also fortunate that I, I've surrounded myself or been surrounded by the people that help me amplify that rather than punish me for it. Such a beautiful, unexpected answer, actually, but I love it. So thank you for sharing that. That's um, fabulous. So so good to talk to you today, as always. It, I'm sh- sorry that, um, you know, I couldn't have, I should have sent you a little uh, bottle of Tazzy Gin and we could have had a, <laughs> had a nice drink here together like we normally do at some bar. We'll, 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 we'll be, we'll be sozzled we'll within 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and the podcast will go for two hours, which is completely, yeah. it's fine. But uh, yeah, so good to see you. And um, thanks again for um, all your fabulous little insights today. They'll help a lot of people, I reckon. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for chatting. Thanks for putting stuff like this out there. I think they're, the more we put resources like this out there for people to help them along in these difficult times, the better it is for everyone. So thanks to you as well. Thanks, Dom. That's lovely. All right, I'll see you soon. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website, wabisabiseries.com. If you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations, please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode or maybe even rate, review and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of wabi-sabi and walk proud in your perfect imperfections.